Welcome to the show, Charlie Smith. It is such a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. Thank you, Dr. Ruth Allen. I appreciate being here. I've been looking forward to speaking to you for since we uh, were with, since we made the introduction. It's great to be here. Uh, it's it, I'm so excited to talk about um, your story because um, there's so many uh, things I can relate to um, based on the experiences you have. So um, I'm just really excited to to share that with my listeners. Um, but before we start, would you could you just tell people a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, who you help? Sure. Yeah, be, be happy to. So um, I have a, I spent about a 30 year career in commercial real estate. Um, really what I've spent uh, the first 42 years of my life doing is running for myself. So I grew up in a small town in Scarborough, Maine. Um, um, today I live in California and that's about as far as I could get. I didn't want to cross the, the uh the Pacific to Hawaii, or I'd probably still be running, but I was running from a lot of childhood trauma. I'm a survivor of violent childhood abuse. At the age of 19, my father had a 45 caliber pistol leveled at my head. And, and so I grew up with what I consider to be kind of a damaged personal truth. You know, what I thought about myself mm -hmm. was heavily um, created by the things that happened to me as a kid. And so um, I viewed myself different than most of the other kids that I grew up with because I had to somehow justify my existence. And so I learned to be dishonest about who I was at a very young age. Um, and so by the age of 12, I started drinking uh, in order to numb that pain, right? I mean, I would go to school and I would want to fit in. And so I would tell kids at school how I was growing up just like they did. I'd say my dad took me to ball mm -hmm. games or that I played sports or watched TV with my folks or my folks helped me do homework. But inside, I knew that was a lie. You know, so for me, this kind of dual existence or false self was created at a very young age and I used drugs and alcohol and material success to kind of shield myself from the real pain of what was happening to me. And so uh, what I can tell people uh, today is that what you don't deal with will deal with you. And so I was able to use all those coping skills, dishonesty, drugs and alcohol and material success to propel myself to a bunch of different lives that I thought would kind of allow me to deny what had happened to me and create the person I always wanted to be, but my self-image was always damaged. You know, my internal thermostat, who I really mm -hmm. thought I was, was always turned way down. I, I tried to show you it was turned way up with sure. cars and with houses and with wealth, but, you know, really inside, I, I just couldn't pass the look in the mirror test. And so mm -hmm. about 13 years ago, you know, I had to confront what was a, becoming a very painful drug and alcohol problem. Um, and I had, you know, developed a, a bunch of retail shopping centers in the state of California and, you know, had a bunch of things that on the outside looked like I was successful, but inside I was very, very broken. Mm -hmm. And so um, about 13 years ago, I decided, you know, as I mentioned to you earlier, that I would kind of take ownership of my life, that I would take mm -hmm. the pen back to the story of my life. And so, you know, I continue to have an active uh, foot in the commercial real estate world, but really I've turned my attention to personal development. I've become a certified mental performance coach. I train companies, organizations, executives, and individuals on mental performance, uh, on how to take the, the the weapon of their their mind and use it for them. I consider the mind a little bit like a plane, right? A plane can drop yeah. a plane can drop bombs to ruin a village, or can drop food to save lives, or an IV bag can deliver you know, drugs to end a life or life-saving medicine. It really depends yeah. on what we put in there. And so um, I opened a sober living house for other professionals and executives struggling with substance abuse. And so, you know, serial entrepreneur, but kind of turning my attention from kind of the material 
physical assets to the human assets and how I can help them. Wow. In a nutshell. That's an amazing transformation from your your childhood experience to to where you are now. But I, you know, this show is all about unchaining your pain and the topic of conversation is brain health. So in the context of your life, for what would you say optimal brain health means for you now? Well, that's a great question. You know, when I think of optimum brain health, I have a couple of I have a couple of, of, of ideas that I hold very true. And and one as it relates to optimum brain health is my ability for my mental condition, my brain, my mind to process and be aware of the external things that are happening to me and to deal with them in a healthy way. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time with an unhealthy mind that was saying things about me to me that I dealt with in an unhealthy way. And so today, to me, it's not it's not the avoidance of the realities of life. It's uh -huh. having a different mindset to deal with them. And a healthy mindset to me is being able to deal with those things without hurting myself or anyone else. Great, great. And I know you talk about having a healthy mindset and, and obviously it's been a, a huge journey for you to, to get to that mindset that you feel happy that you, it, it's healthy and, it, and it's thriving rather than you're surviving. When, when did that, um, I know you've mentioned it briefly, you've given us a very uh, whistle top store of uh, a top um, a story of your experience. When did it really start this uh, the trauma that you you initially experienced in childhood, and could you just go into that a little bit more detail, if you're if you're willing to? Yes, of course. Um, so there's a book called The Secret to the Slight Edge, written by an author named Bob Moed, and he mm -hmm. he writes he writes an opening sentence that says, "Champions are born and then unmade." And so by the age of six, the inner champion that was my young innocence was stolen by my dad. I suffered mm -hmm. my first closed fist punch to my face at the age of six wow. and really it, it, it escalated and continued. There's, there's, there's childhood trauma and then there's complex trauma and complex mm -hmm. trauma is as, as I've become aware of and more attuned to is, you know, that kind of um, unrelenting, um, continuous, unpredictable kind of series of events that occurs where you just really lose your sense of safety. And so your mm -hmm. mind is really firing in that amygdala space. You know, you're, mm -hmm. you're in that fight, flight or freeze yeah. mode pretty much all of the time. That's why I think, you know, for me at the age of six, having experienced, you know, the first violent episode of my life and then yeah. having that continue and escalate till 19, really, I'll just say, had me look at everything in life through a trauma set of lenses. You know, I mm -hmm. couldn't differentiate that, oh, my dad is unsafe, but the teacher in school, he's safe. And so I became, you know, a very challenged student. It pretty much affected every aspect of my life, social, emotional, intellectual, physical, you know, it was uncoordinated. Every aspect of mm -hmm. my life was unregulated because my mind was just trying to keep me safe. And so you know, so to answer your question, it started at the age of six and it was wow. it was really continuous, you know, really Throughout. for the next 13 years of my life. Yeah. Yeah. And I know you mentioned during that time is, you know, some people might say, well, why didn't you just run away? <laughs> um, but it's hard, isn't it, to when you're in an environment that is your parents or it's your it's your siblings, whatever it is, it's hard to run away from a situation that maybe you've become accustomed to and you just think 
this is this is my life this is how i i ha you know i just have to have um, coping mechanisms to deal with it how what would you say to people who who are less familiar with being in that situation that, that how you how you have to deal with it as a child because i think sometimes it's really difficult for people to understand that emotional like you said emotional physical mental and spiritual impact it has on a child and and that coping mechanism that you had to create for yourself to get through those really tumultuous years yeah no it, it, it you know you're a you're a kid you know and at the end of the day you know why don't you run where where am i first of all where am i going to go but second yeah. of all second of all dr allen it's it's really your abusive life seems like the only normal one you don't i mean you know for me i had you know i'll tell you that resilience i think comes from having at least one person in your life believe in you and i had other places where i could escape to but mm -hmm. at the end of the day the way i mean and look let me just preface this by saying my father was not a you know budweiser on the couch truck driving alcoholic my father was the head of the school of education at the university of southern maine my mother was a first grade school teacher we were on the cover of Catholic Digest magazine in 1970 as the model Catholic family. This wow. is this is this was not, you know, to the outside world what what many would consider to be, um, you know, this this kind of torrid, abusive environment. To the outside world, you know, we looked. It was oh, all fine dad, and dandy. My, my dad, you know, tweed blazer, tie on every day. Yeah. You know, he, he went to school and and was was adored by his graduate students. Um, and so you see these trappings of what your friend's normal life looks like. But I really what I want to emphasize more than that is that this becomes your normal life. Your, your normal your yeah. life is your life is get up and survive. And your life is get up and survive. And your life is get up and survive. And so it's not like you really have any kind of built in resilience or tolerance or courage to say, Oh, you know what, I'm just out of here. Uh, mm -hmm. that was my that was my mom's job my mm -hmm. mom's job yeah. was to keep us safe that was my right. mom's job you know and and she didn't do her job yeah and did you know your, your mom obviously in this situation um did she did she feel as if she could create that safe space do you know do you know yeah sometimes very... it's too it's difficult for for the for the dynamic of the family isn't it to it is it, it, it is my mom um my mom also felt trapped you know she didn't know there weren't a lot of resources for women she was a young mother with four kids she was a first grade school teacher when you're i mean she was obviously the victim of domestic violence for you know mm -hmm. 43 years of her life um and the episode with the gun kind of played itself out in her own life after 43 years of marriage and she left my father finally at the age of 65 um she walked out finally and, and took her life back um but I think there's a there's just a dark cloud that existed over the family. Mm -hmm. And I would just use the term trapped. You know, we all felt trapped and there was no escape. Sure. The only escape was when dad would leave. Right. So when he would yeah. go away on a business conference, you know, we'd get the sugared cereal. We'd watch cartoons a little later in the morning. You would <laughs> feel this sense of all these little kind of normal childhood things. Yeah. You'd get this little sprinkle of. I could breathe. And, and you wanted that to last more than anything. But then. You know, we had a rock and driveway. You'd, you'd get, yeah, you'd, he'd come back, and and everything would get elevated, and and you know, and and so your brain, you know, to 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 bring this full circle, your brain is firing in survival mode. You've got cortisol, and adrenaline 
rushing through your brain pretty much at, at all times. And you're so, on all the time, aren't you, to, to survive? Yeah. 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 And so I, and so numbing it become and you want to numb it however you can. You know, right. so for, for me, it was it was drinking by the age of 12, but then it was work and school. See, my dad was a college professor. So there were two things that were acceptable for him for me to be out of the house. One was work and the other was school. So if I could throw myself into both of those things, it was an it was an acceptable way for me to be out of the house. So I used to think he gave me a healthy work ethic because I've been working since I was 13 years old. Well, he didn't give me anything. What he gave me yeah. was the, the escape route. And the I need to escape. And I took it. Yeah. And and when you when you um, decided on those escape mechanisms, and I know you you said school was one of them. Can you tell us a bit about what was the trigger for you to 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 move into that? Was it just a natural opportunity, or or was there a there a key event where you said, right, it's now or it's now or never? Well, that's a great question. So I'm gonna I'm gonna share <laughs> with you the power of our thoughts. Okay, so from the from from about second grade when the first event of abuse happened until about seventh grade i was in special ed i was a troubled uh student i was a disciplinary problem i was yeah. seeking attention in negative ways my grades were very poor and they put me into special ed as learning disabled i was not learning disabled i was You're viewing school through a trauma set trauma of lenses. mindset and so i couldn't i mean you know I'm thinking about getting my head taken off at home and you're asking me to do six times eight. I'm like, I'm sorry. It's, you can't. I can't. Your bucket's full. <laughs> and so they moved. My bucket was you know, way full, well mm -hmm. set. And so they moved me into special ed. And, and again, feeling different than all my other classmates, you know, was magnified. And, and then in about seventh grade, so I don't know exactly how old I must have been. My mother had a conversation with me as I was getting ready to go to high school, seventh, eighth grade. And she said to me, and I'll never forget it, Dr. Allen. Yeah. She said, Charlie, I can't keep you safe. I can't keep you safe here. The only way for you to be safe is if we can get you to college, if we can get you away to college. Well, don't you know that that's all my mind needed to hear? And I went to a private Jesuit high school. And by freshman year, I made honor roll. Now mm -hmm. I didn't get a I didn't get a band of tutors. I didn't have a brain transplant. Mm -hmm. you know, I didn't go through some kind of frontal lobotomy. I literally <laughs> shifted my mind from school being a threat to school being an opportunity, and I was able to elevate the way I attended school, the way I participated in school, and the way I achieved at school simply by having my mind shift my mind shift from school being a threat to school being an opportunity. And to survive that, and then thrive. And isn't that so telling because really you know what i've learned is i can apply that same aptitude to anything that i want in my life now the based on the picture that i put into my mind about what an opportunity is or a threat, or a threat. it is will change the way that i react and so i learned that subconsciously at a young age i reflect on it because i kept all my report cards and i was going through them as i was rebuilding my life and kind of looking at this story which by the way I cannot tell you and emphasize enough, when I got those early report cards from my mom when she had left my dad, I wanted to throw them out. In fact, I think I did throw them out. Mm -hmm. um, and, and and somebody in my life pulled them out of the trash can and said, you don't want to throw away your life just yet. And it's turned out to be a, a treasure chest of insight for me because I saw that progression. I was like, what happened? I mean, my poor, I mean, I could haul them out of my, my file cabinet. You would see, I mean, I am the poster child for red ink report cards. And then all of a sudden, 
I see this little square. It says, it says honor roll. I'm like, that conversation shifted my mind, shifted my behaviors, shifted my results. And, and for, you know, I think we we quite often miss this trauma that's happening in the background, don't we? With kids are growing up in a abusive uh, environment. What would you say to um, teachers or um, professors who have children who are struggling with their learning? And you've just demonstrated that it wasn't your learning that was the problem; it was your mindset approach to learning. Wow! That, what a great that, what a great what a that great was, question. was it was was really struggling what would you say to to those in higher education who are the teachers and the and the support who are there to keep kids safe what would you say to them were the markers the you know the warning signs that this wasn't a kid with learning difficulties this was a kid who who needed to get to a place of safety yeah isn't it so true and 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 i would say i would say educate yourselves, learn more about trauma, learn more about uh -huh. a trauma impacted brain, understand how you can come to the aid of that child. Because I'm sure in a different time, I was a candidate for, you know, ADHD medicine or Ritalin. It's like, what's, you know, let's medicate this kid. I mean, he can't pay attention. Yeah. What was, and so, you know, in California, the, and I, I think, you know, now internationally, we've got the adverse childhood experience test where we look at the adverse childhood experiences and look at what a kid's number is and evaluate their number of childhood adverse experiences, you know, because those do indicate very, very strongly an induction into drugs and alcohol or unhealthy behaviors. So I think we're starting to really do a much better job of, of making teachers aware. And then obviously we're going to need resources. So the next thing is to have social emotional learning. Um, you know, I know my fiance um, has started a foundation called Wonderseed, which is specifically designed to teach social emotional learning and emotional intelligence mm -hmm. to at-risk kids. And I mean, those are the kinds of platforms that are just going to become so important because the, the, the teachers need a resource. I mean, they've been trained to right. be teachers. They're not trained to deal with trauma. So we've got we've to help them identify and then we've got to give them resources much like you know, they've gotten, in, they're not the PE teacher, but they have a PE teacher. They're not right. the emotional intelligence instructor, but we yeah. need to give them one so we can calm these kids' amygdalas down so that we can calm these trauma impacted yeah. brains down and create a safe environment for them. Yeah. And I, and I think, and I'm fa I find this topic fascinating because of my childhood experiences, is that it sometimes it's really difficult to communicate as a child what you're feeling because you don't have the brain development to have that conversation at a level that an adult would understand, um, or you don't have the vocabulary to express yourself when you're a very young child, um, to, to connect the emotion pain that you're feeling or the physical pain in a way that a, an adult can, can un understand what's going. What would you, what would you say were the, uh, the real markers for you personally um, that are not verbal, the non-verbal cues um, that were present at the time that you were experiencing this this traumatic period of your life. Yeah, I think it. it, it what it all comes back to, I think, is is an inherent sense of, of lack of safety. And so, when you grow up in, you know, as you know better than anybody, when you grow up in a trauma abusive 
violent environment, you, you have these rules. And the rules of the family are don't talk, don't tell, don't feel. And so that keeps the family unit very closed off from anybody on the outside world. You know, I can remember when company would come to our house, it was like uh, a carnival. It was like a masquerade. It was like a new scene opened. And, and there we all were, you know, smiling and they would have tea or coffee yeah. and a little crumb cake would come out. And you'd, you'd be wondering where, where, I mean, we were just all terrified. And now we're that, I mean, but again, you don't talk, you don't feel and you don't tell. And so, you know, you've got this, um, this closed system, which prohibits you from being able to feel safe to tell a teacher, I'm, I'm scared. You know, mm -hmm. I, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen when I get home. And what happened this morning, you know, this bruise, you know, this scar that happened by my, I mean, you're, you're, you're so programmed to keep these things to yourself, to yourself. that, that, that that all we can do is try to give kids a safe environment to start opening up just a little bit. And that's where I mm -hmm. think emotional intelligence, social emotional learning, and a compassionate, empathetic education system that takes into account what's happening to them is so important because you are dealing really with a prison wall. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not that I it's not that I didn't want to tell somebody, it's that I didn't trust anybody. And I knew that if I told and he found out that it would escalate the the, the result. I mean it was, it's amazing to me um, I, that, that I would get letters home from my teachers, right? I, and I, I got a letter home from, I, for, I forget the teacher's name now, Mrs. Stokes. Mm -hmm. Charlie seems to be struggling. He's missing pages in workbooks that used to never bother him. He's missing math facts. He's disruptive in class. Maybe you know more than I do, but I thought you should be aware. I mean, those were the letters that were coming home to the perpetrator of the abuse yeah. telling them oh, that, that yeah and 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 all that would do was you know elevate the amount of violence <laughs> amplify it because i wasn't that i wasn't the the good student that 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 he demanded me to be and so it right. was this vicious cycle of yeah. of really not feeling safe anywhere yeah that's really tough isn't it and and i know you obviously to to numb the emotional and physical pain that you're experiencing you you turned to alcohol and you also used education as your leverage to, to, to get you out. What was the, was there a trigger in which you sort of started, started drinking or does it just happen as a, as a, uh, as a, just a need? So here, here is, I think a lot of, a lot of young children that are in trauma will seek comfort. And so for me, yeah. I wasn't, I didn't know alcohol would do what it did, but you know, kind of like any, adolescent my friend eric knott's parents went out of town i think we we're 12 years old he's like oh they have some vodka we should try this and we tried it and for eric right it was try the vodka oh made me feel funny i don't want this again for yeah. charlie for charlie it was oh my god i just totally forgot about everything that's happening at home i want to feel like this all the time, all the time. And so so i always tell people especially as, as we we, we uh, evolve into this societal issue of kids under the age of 25 using marijuana, it's not about what you drink or smoke or use, and it's not about yeah. how much you drink or smoke or use, it's why. And why? So, the connect, so the connection for me was emo, immense emotional pain, alcohol, numb it. I want all of my emotional pain numbed. So whenever I felt unaccepted at school, all those kind of adolescent things that we should be dealing with as kids naturally, I would seek drugs and alcohol to numb everything. And, and the problem, 
as I explain to people with, with using substances to numb is, unfortunately, our neurotransmitters don't get to identify that we're just going to numb the pain. We're going to, it, it numbs, numbs everything. everything. So, so it numbs joy, it numbs happiness. You know, yeah. it, 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 it does a, a good job of just saying, you know, you're not going to feel and you're not going to enjoy. And so what I'll tell you is I became very adept at all three of those. So it was alcohol to a point, but then it was school because it was my pathway out and then it was work. So, you know, and I think you can speak probably better than I can, but I believe we all do things in pattern, right? Things we do over and over again because we get a payoff from them. I and mean, sometimes Absolutely. they're healthy and sometimes they're not. So I got lots of payoffs from working, which was being out of my house. You know, so I'm 55 years old. I started working at the age of, I think I started picking peas when I was nine. I've never been laid off written up, demoted, fired from any job I've ever had because to me, I was a compliant worker and, and, and you know, I have to, I have to asterisk that, that for the last 20 years I've worked for myself. So I'm, I'm sure I would have, should have fired myself <laughs> a few times in the last 20 years for some of my antics, but I've let myself off the hook. But, but my point is that I, all of those things I did in pattern because I got a payoff and I was a very compliant worker because if I, first of all, I grew up being a people pleaser. And second of all, work was survival. So we do things in pattern because we got to pay off. And all three of those yeah. things were my, all three of those things were my coping mechanisms. I wasn't living intentional and I was, and I was using them in an unhealthy way. And ultimately, as I said, what you don't deal with, will deal with you. Yeah. And I th so you used it for, for as a coping me mechanism, all three of those things, drugs, uh, alcohol, and also work for qu quite a long period of time, didn't you? Was it 20 years you said you had a alcohol? Yeah, so so at the alcohol. age of 42, yeah, at the age of 40, I got yeah. sober, I got sober at the age of 42. And yeah. you know, the disease of alcoholism is progressive uh, and it's chronic and it's deadly. Those are the three primary characteristics of substance yeah. abuse. And so the progression of the disease probably started when I was 20 and, and I it didn't really rear its, it, it really didn't progress to the point of, you know, alcoholism and drug addiction probably until my early 30s. And then mm -hmm. it escalated quickly. And like anything, you know, you can, we're good until we're not, you know. And mm -hmm. so ultimately, we have two dials, you know, I think that drive our results, our beliefs about ourselves and the behaviors we engage in. And if those two things are out of alignment, ultimately, the car goes off the road. Mm -hmm. I don't care who you are. I've seen it with celebrities. I've seen it with professional athletes. You know, they have this life they want you to believe. They're, they're engaged in a bunch of unhealthy behaviors. I was, and then ultimately we're good until we're not. And then some event happens and it's either a catalyst for change or it's not. For me at the age of 42, there was sufficient uh, motivation on my part to, to, to not want to be the man I was being. I saw that, I saw a glimpse of that four-year-old kid and said, man, I just want to go back to, to being him. Yeah. I, and I know you were a dad at the time, weren't you? When you, when you made that decision to, enough is enough based on them you know the self-medication that you were doing to find a way that was going to help you now and later what was that what was that turning point for you what made you realize I need to I really need to take action now to help myself yeah it became a matter of life and death I mean that okay. that catalyst for change you know I had one more incident in my family had left me. Um, I had, you know, a, a repeated, what happens is, is as the disease of alcoholism and addiction progresses, 
the incidents of effect kind of get closer and closer together and they get worse mm-hmm. and worse. Um, and, and that's where, you know, you see people unable to make that shift or make that change. I don't like to talk about hitting, bo- I mean, I, I don't like to talk about hitting rock bottom because I think you don't have to be sick to get better, better Dr. Allen. You don't no. have to go. And I think we, we tell people you have to hit rock bottom, but that's simply whenever you stop digging. It's simply when you decide, you know, the way I'm living is not the way I want to live. And, mm-hmm. and it all starts with that that kind of powerful, powerful antidote, which is asking for help and finding somebody that you trust. For me, it was a trusted therapist that I've been mm-hmm. lying to, that I've been lying to for about six or eight months, you know, and then finally I got honest with him. And mm-hmm. really, you know, there's no discipline like self-discipline. There's no real accountability better than self-accountability. And I fundamentally wanted to change. I had, I had a motivation inside myself. I didn't know, I didn't know how, I didn't know how long it was going to take. I didn't know what I was going to have to do, but I knew that I wasn't the man that I wanted to be. I could not look myself in the mirror. And I said to myself, you know, there's got to be a better way. I've got to, I've got to find a better way. And so I asked for help. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important that, you know, that asking for help is a strength that we need to leverage more, that it's not a weakness to ask for help. It's actually, it is a difficult thing to ask for help, isn't it? When you're when you're struggling, and that you you know, my my experience was I was in, in a difficult place from a work perspective, and I realised I had to ask for help and get support. I went, I reached out for coaching. A very very different story, but um, when you're struggling, it's it's okay <laughs> to to ask for help. And what would you say to? Um, men or women who are in that position where they they know that they 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 need that help but it's finding that courage i'd just kind of like to explore the difference in you personally before the the day before you ask for help uh, and and then you know the subsequent days after when you when you realize right this is really what i need to do uh, so I, I'm I, just thinking about it. It makes me emotional because imagine, imagine these shoulders with six feet of bricks on top of them. Yeah. Walking, walking around with the weight of the world on my shoulders and not knowing if I could even knock one brick off. And the day I said to Dr. Paul Hirsch, I need help. It's like, oh, it's off. like literally they, I mean, you know, it's and it's not like the path out is necessarily. I don't even like to use the word. It, it, uh, it's a hell of a lot easier than the way I was living, but it's emotionally yeah. more. It's emotionally more challenging. But I'll tell you, it's it's the weight of the world is off your shoulders when you ask for help. And the other thing that I've learned, which I really want people to understand, is you're giving someone else a gift. There's no better way to feel good than being selflessly involved in another human being's life. There's n- there's no more generation of happiness in ourselves and help, help selflessly being involved in helping another human being. And what you're really doing is giving somebody a gift. You're giving somebody the gift of being able to help you. And so many people want to help. Um, and so, you know, I hope people will understand two things about asking for help. One, it's necessary. And two, you're giving people in your lives a gift because you're saying, I can't do this and I don't want to do it. Will you help me? Uh, mm-hmm. I've just not met, I've just not met anybody in 
the 13 years that I've been on this road of, of personal recovery and personal development that hasn't gotten significantly better by asking for help. Yeah. And I, you know, for me, <laughs> I, I always used to think that I, you know, can do it all by myself. Um, I, I'm quite capable. I can learn it. I don't need to ask for help. And then suddenly um, the switch goes and you realize actually it's such an important sentence to learn oh, to say, yeah, <laughs> I need transformative. help. It's transformative. And, and to your point, we're kind of trained, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, but yeah. I will tell you from my own experience, and, and I'm sure you can relate to this and probably elaborate on it. The mind that creates the problem, the mind that creates the narrative, the mind that creates the story, the mind that's been imprinted on for years and years has a hard time solving the problem because it's, 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 my, my very existence was married to my story. My very identity was married to my story. And so for me to, for me to go, it, it, you know, it'd be like a, it'd be like the electrical box in my house needing to be rewired and the wires trying to figure it out on their side. It's like, no, you need an electrician. He's got to open the thing up. He's got to, and he's got to <laughs> say, oh, this wire's in the wrong spot. And if you want this to go to the lights, we got to move it here and put it here. It's like the wires aren't just going to, you know, fix themselves and so i needed a good electrician that yeah. could help that could help me navigate this new path and we'll, we'll talk a little bit i'm sure about creating those new paths yeah and I, you know in terms of this show this is all about unchaining your pain some of those wires don't serve you and so it's about disconnecting the ones that are not uh lighting the right switches in the house or or causing disruption um, so that you you can light the fire inside yourself that is you personally as a you know your self-worth your self-value your identity your authentic you that has been kind of put out because of all of this electrical circuitry of, 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 that was there to disrupt um, the true you bit bit like they do jamming devices don't they in the military to to block the true signal that, that sits within your mind that that is the the true you that you 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 know going back to that four-year-old that you want you want to uh give a big hug to again and 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 take on the journey that you're now on and it's yeah, so important it, it is i i the best analogy that i can give people is to imagine their old neural pathways, their own story, their own narrative, their old pain, like a hiking trail that's been hiked on for 30 years by people. It's worn. It's it's very clearly outlined. You get to the beginning of the trail, you go, I must walk up here. I must get walk up here. And it's a very unhealthy path and it's a very unhealthy trail and it's leading you to a life that you don't want. And yeah. there is no there is no trail here. It's cut this this trail, the one you want, is covered with brush, it's covered with barranca, it's covered with with um, with thorns and bushes, it's just been covered up for 50 years. And you start taking one twig, you say, I'm not gonna walk up that path anymore. I'm gonna start walking here. You have to clear and basically keep, you know, kind of charting a new course, walking a new path. And, you know, there's some branches and you get cut and you get, and you and, and you wanna turn around and say, you know what, it's easier just to go the old way. But the more you keep clear and brush, the more you keep walking down that new path, every day you get up and say, you know what? No, I'm going here. And that's, that's the way I view kind of unchaining, unlocking and unleashing my new sense of, of peace and happiness and self-worth is by every day 
committing myself and recommitting myself to walking down that new path. And, you know, I, I will say to people always that there's, when you get in your car at the end of the day, there's two pieces of glass. There's a rear view mirror and a windshield yeah. and the rear view mirror, <laughs> the rear view mirror is important, right? I mean, I, there's lessons in the rear view mirror, but it's very small compared to the windshield because where you're going is much more important than where you've been. And I think what I've learned as a result of the work I've done is, you know, if I stare at the rear view mirror, but in the, I'm going to get in an accident. And so exactly. I've, got, I've got to look out the windshield and I've got to kind of set that new course and then commit myself to it every day. Yeah, I always say, don't if you're going forward in life, don't spend all your time looking in the rearview mirror. Yeah, it'll it'll definitely. I've, I've done that. I've, I've crashed a few times. Yeah, and and it's so easy for people to get stuck, isn't it, on that negative narrative from their past, and not equip themselves with the tools, like you say, to to forge that new path up a new mountain, and and the importance of having a guide who's got the map and the compass and the right tools to equip you so that you, you can find a, a, an easier route up the mountain rather than doing all the work yourself. So well said, so. It's, it's so, it's, it is so very true. And you know, that, that, that idea of moving forward with help is just so powerful. Yeah. So, so what would, based on your experience, I, I want to just go backwards a little bit. Sure. Based on yeah. your experiences that you have now, what advice would you give to your, let's start with the 12 year old self, what would advice would you give to them if you were to, to zoom back in time? Um, I would want to tell little Charlie that his dad's version and vision of him is not reflective of his true self and that he's got a masterpiece inside uh, and that if he could chip away and 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 get to know himself he could be himself um and that he's lovable and that he's capable um and that he could have an incredible life um and that his dad is sick you know and that his dad is not reflective of you know the kind of person that he's going to be around for the rest of his life and i think kind of those i'd share with him the three p's of of resilience right it's not this is not permanent kid we're going to get through this it's not pervasive you know, this may be happening at home, but it's does not it's not going to it's not going to exist in all aspects of your life. Because, and, it's, and, it, and it's not personal. It's it, it, this isn't about you or who you are. It's about him and who he is. And so let's find you, you know, the things that you enjoy doing and some healthy ways to, to escape that. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. And for you personally, and you obviously went back to your therapist and you told them the truth. <laughs> um which is difficult, isn't it? It's difficult to, to, to take the cloak off and be vulnerable and say, actually, it's, um, that's not who I am. This is my reality um, versus the perception I've given to you. What, what was the biggest needle mover for you on that journey to recovery? What, what was the key so things that really helped you? So, so there was a, there was a few. I'll tell you, burning burning the warm blanket of shame that I lived under. You know, shame and guilt live in the past. That's just where mm -hmm. they hide. That's where they that's where they thrive. And the problem with that rearview mirror is, I think we pay too much privilege to the past, right? I think neutral thinking, which is one of the mindset 
strategies that I've used is that the past is is real. It did happen, mm -hmm. but it's not predictive of the future. The future is predicted based on what I do next. So I am where I am because of what's happened and what I've done. And I'll be where I'm going to be next based on what I do next. And so really getting myself into that forward thinking kind of active optimism. But I'll tell you that the real answer to your question is honesty. The number one thing I honesty. had to learn was to be honest. I had learned. So so if you could imagine principles that you live by in your life, like a muscle, I had mm -hmm. worked out my, I've been working out my dishonesty muscle since I was six years old. It's not that I wanted to or was innately just a dishonest person. I had been lying about who I was, you know, and, and, and I want to clarify, this wasn't this adolescent, did you break that? No, I didn't, so I don't get in trouble. This was mm -hmm. fundamentally lying about who I was. I was lying about how I grew up. I was lying about how I felt about myself. I was lying about the actual true essence of myself. Some people would call it creating a false self. And so being honest with myself first, and then being honest with another human being second, and then kind of being honest with my my higher power, my, my God, my spirit of the universe, you know, those three kind of components all live under the blanket of, of, of my authentic self. And so mm -hmm. honest, learning to be honest with myself and with you was fundamental and foundational to me shifting my perspective. And, and really now, what I'll tell you is that my honesty muscle has gotten much stronger. I didn't even, when I first made this shift, I used to lie. I would lie to a car dealer about what, you know, I, I, when I was traveling in, in Europe, I went to a U2 concert. <laughs> And I and I lied oh, about you too. We could talk about. I love you too. I saw them at Croke Park in Dublin, and and uh, <laughs> I and I don't remember. I don't remember much of it, unfortunately. But this 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 Irish car salesman at the BMW dealership was asking me about the concert, and I totally lied to him about the concert I was at. What I remembered because I just gotten so accustomed to lying. And yeah. so, I, you know, I, I went back and made that right with him, and said, you know, I was here yesterday, and I mean, he's looking at me like I got three heads, but I've learned. I can't tolerate, you know, walking back up that old path. And so I've learned to work out my honesty muscles so that so that I feel congruent. And I think in alignment or congruency yeah. is, the, is the second thing. So what I want and what I do have, have, have to become aligned. You know, before what I wanted and what I did were like this. I wanted certain things in my life and I wanted to feel a certain way, but my behaviors were over here. Now yeah. it's a now it's about congruency. And so just being honest about what I want and what I'll sure. do in my daily life. And I guess that kind of allowed you to take back control of the steering wheel, right? Because if you're dishonest, then you don't really have full control around who you are and where you want to go because you're kind of living this this lie all the time, aren't you in your life? Did that make yeah. the windscreen clearer for you? What was the shift going, you know, being able to see, you know, you talk about the rear view mirror and then being able to look forward in life. What was the real shift in the in the front, uh, you know, the windscreen for you? So for me, it was, you know, I say if you don't know who you are, you could become someone else. And for me, the real shift in the windscreen was when I started to look at who I was instead of who I wasn't. My dad had raised me to always see who I wasn't. You know, so uh. I would see I would see everybody else in comparison to me, and I saw no innate value in myself. Right. And so just imagine a windshield cluttered up with the dreams and the goals of everybody else who's better than you. And finally, you know, you take this big windshield wiper across, and you go, wait a minute. Your 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 work your goals your dreams should be out in that windshield. You're where you yeah. want to go. 
you know, you should you should start to be okay looking at who you are instead of who you're not. And so I started to get comfortable being myself because I, I saw myself and it really started to, and, and, and trust me, it's not conceit. It's just, we all have indelible strengths. We're all really able quickly to look at who we're not. And, and, and when we start to look at who we are, you know, expectancy theory kicks in and we start to see more of who we are. Then we start yeah. to behave in accordance with who we are and we start to become better versions of ourselves intentionally. I really never lived an intentional life. So what cleared the windshield up for me was starting to look at my strengths, yeah. to look at the principles I wanted to live by, and then to exercise both of those. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. I mean, for me, my, one of the big things that I did was looking at my core values and understand understanding what they were for me, um, which was which I see as my moral compass in life, uh, and appreciating where they were missing when I went on my transformational journey, where they, where they weren't present in my life, which was in the workplace, um, and, and where I, I could do the work myself to bring more of that authentic me to the fore and, and be okay that not everyone's gonna like me uh, you know sometimes I can be abrasive sometimes uh, you know I, I I say the wrong things and you know it's not meant with any malice or anything it's just the way just the way it is and we all have to learn don't we and and, and move forward and be that person that we want to be not not some trying to put a, a square peg in around in a round hole because it just doesn't doesn't fit or I like to think trying to squeeze a star into a into a circle yeah you know because we're all stars we've got to find the right you know that right shape and Um, then don't you and and then when you shove that star in the circle don't you take away the most beautiful parts of the star exactly Uh, that differentiates it from all other stars yeah amazing Uh, And, and and so the second thing I'll tell you about values is is the other important lesson I learned. And this is this is for me as a person. This is for me as an executive, as an entrepreneur. What makes things valuable in my life is the investment I make. I was confused about this, right? Because I would say I value my family. And then I mm-hmm. looked at the behaviors I engaged in, right? And the amount of time I spent with my family and how I showed up for my family and you're talking to somebody with with a bit of a you know a, a sordid past, and so I'm you know I did put my kids in my car when I was loaded. I was not home on Friday nights like I should have been. So I said I valued my family, but the way that I exercised and invested my time in them didn't make them valuable. They actually went down yeah. in value. Same thing with work. Same thing mm-hmm. with my hobbies. Same thing with my principles. So we have to. I had to do two things. I had to establish what I valued. And then I had to make a conscious decision to invest in the things I value, in the things I valued to make them actually valuable as I thought I wanted them to be. And I was I confused that, about that. I think that's so powerful because people don't really thank you for sharing. They just don't take that time, do they, to to look up what did they truly value and what steps do do I or or that what do, steps need to be taken to demonstrate that you value that person, that that uh, piece of belonging, whatever it happens to be, uh, and and to really show it out to the world. And it's so easy to to just put a label on something and and not demonstrate it um, t- to yourself, not never mind to others. And 
you mentioned the word invest that you really had to invest in in yourself do you feel that uh we uh, as a people who are struggling um with addictions have that um how, how does i'm trying to think of the way to phrase it is there's this need isn't there to take the time to invest in ourselves do you think um you've done the i'm not sure how to phrase this but how do people get to a place where they really are truly investing in themselves like you just mentioned how how did they how did you create that true shift to really take that time to invest in you and what was most important for you based on your based on your addictions that you had to break that break that chain yeah, I think it, what I got really clear on is is understanding that motivation doesn't always come from a feeling. It comes from movement. And so I used to think I had to wait to feel like changing in order to change. And what I realized is if I want to change, I have to be I have to recommit to my commitments every day. And if I have and, and if I want something, then I have to work for it. And I don't mean work in like this laborious, tedious way. I mean, I, I mean, there's a movie with Will Smith called The Pursuit. Of happiness. of happiness and and for me the pursuit is happiness it's the yeah. daily pursuit of getting better that makes me happy i think i spent so much time getting attached to outcomes you know that when i get this then i'll be happy if i get this then i will have achieved and then i'll show everybody and i'll show him and show them and i never and, and what happens is you get you know as my friend mike diamond would say destination disease you know your your happiness is contingent on the outcome. And so when the outcome comes, you know, there's another outcome to put out down the road. And for me today, it's the pursuit of understanding what it is that I want and then understanding there's a set of behaviors that go along with getting it and then committing myself to do those things every day. It's actually how you build self-esteem. It's like I use simple examples, but it's like I went to the, the gym the other day and my trainer said, how's your golf game? I said, you know, I'm an 18 handicap, but I really want to be a 15. And then I said, <laughs> and then I and, and then I said, you know what, Ryan? That's bullshit. I don't because I don't go to the drive. I don't go to the driving range. And I don't stop and putt on my way home. So I guess I'm content being an 18, and I'm a pretty decent 18. But I'm not interested in becoming a 15 because I'm not doing the things that a 15 does. And to me, that's the whole thing. It's like just get honest about what it is, but don't say. I'll put it this way. I wanted the world to judge me by my intentions. I judge yeah. myself by my intentions. But what I realized is I really value myself based on my actions. And so to me, it's getting those things in alignment, what I say I want and what I do, and then doing it every day. And all I can tell you is that much like the disempowering and the disingenuine and the self-esteem eroding behaviors eroded my self-esteem and my self-worth, the empowering behaviors keep turning the thermostat up and it becomes this, this, you get this forward momentum yeah, and, and, yeah. The, and the biggest problem, and you probably can relate to this. And, and I think it's why self image management is the whole thing is because if you don't feel worthy of the life that you want, you'll never create it. You have yeah. to feel innately worthy of a better life in order for you to create it. Otherwise you'll stay stuck. Yeah. And what I, I totally agree. And, um, in terms of you creating that life for yourself and not getting stuck in the space that you were, and you've obviously demonstrated it is possible to create the life 
that you want that is on your terms doing what you want to do being your authentic self what what for you has really shifted now that you you have been able to break free of the chains from your past and to really be honest with yourself and step into that person that that you know you're capable of being um God, what a great question. I think the, the answer I could tell you quite simply is <laughs> self-awareness without judgment. So I've stopped judging myself for being, if I wake up a little anxious or if I'm starting a new business and I'm and I'm a little afraid, I don't say, boy, you've done all this work. You're so, you, you can't be as good as you think you are because you're still afraid. No, it's not no fear, N-O fear. It's K-N-O-W. It's like being aware without judgment and then saying, but based on the fact that you are a little afraid, based on the fact that you feel a little insecure, what is it that you're going to do? And then I go back to principles, principles, principles. It's like I was an adolescent for 42 years and I made choices based on preference. You understand? I made choices yeah. based on what I thought would make me feel better. And what I've learned today is that adults make choices based on principles. And so the more I have a feeling, right, feelings we hear a lot about feelings. Feelings aren't fact. Yeah. Don't trust your feelings. Feelings are real. If you're human, you feel you're supposed to feel. They're much like signal lights, though. Green, yellow, red. Be aware yeah. when I'm in green. Be aware when I'm in yellow. Be aware when I'm in red. And then have a set of behaviors. Oh, you know what? I'm in red. Doubt. Insecurity's creeping in. I'm feeling a bit disconnected. What do I do? I call somebody. I say a quick prayer. I do a meditation. I return yeah. the phone calls that I said. I go to the gym. All of a sudden, I work myself back to green. I used to stay in red and just keep running oh, red time. lights. Yeah, just keep <laughs> running red lights. You know, I'll get through this. I'll get through this. The and you're probably come. ignoring the red lights. Uh, completely. Because you weren't checking in with your emotions and going, there's a red light. There's a red light. What do I need to do? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I love the fact that I can feel and I love the fact that I can be comfortable being uncomfortable um, because then I have a set of principles and a set of you, you, you said that so eloquently about having a, a value, you know, understanding what your values are, understanding what your principles are. And then I just apply. I mean, I have my principles. I literally have to keep them. I have them, you know, 12 principles I, I try to live by every day. Right now I'm going with the H's. So for me, my, my self-affirmation is I'm hopeful. I'm helpful, I'm humble, and I'm honest. I'm working on those four things right now. So if I can practice being hopeful, optimistic, if yeah. I can hope, if I can practice being helpful, being of service, if I yeah. can be hum humble and keep my ego and pride out of the way, and if I can be honest, I'm living a principled life today. And and that's how I'm. I just make it that simple. Yeah, and I think simplicity is the key. Is is if you make it too complicated, you can't remember it, can you? Uh, and you and you can't live by it because your your brain can only really focus on one task at a time. So where you've got really good mantra that grounds you, it's very easy to check in with yourself. And I love the you know you meant mention the, the the feelings is this this permission to feel. And, and, and Mark Brackett says it's all about emotional. Be emotional scientist, not an emotional judge, uh, and spend your life being you know get curious not furious with your emotions because they're a signal to tell you that you need to do something um, either to reduce that emotion or to, or to build on it, you know, if it's a positive one, to build on it and, and leverage it to best effect or, 
or to do something with a negative emotion that is is constructive, not de destructive, in, in the way you leverage it. Well, that and that's and that's why, Doctor, I love your platform because I think you know people are confused. I was confused that the absence of mental illness is mental health, and that's not true. No, it's not. We true take people. If you would, if I imagined a line and zero was here and negative five was here and plus five was here, if zero was the absence of mental illness, plus five is thriving. Plus five is being happy. It's being purposeful. It's being at peace. It's being motivated. It's being inspired. I mean, between the year 1967 and 2000, there were over 95,000 psychological abstracts done on worry, depression, and anxiety. In that same time period, there were only 5,000 psychological abstracts done on happiness, joy, and well-being. We don't pay enough privilege to actually thriving in life and to actually Not. having a healthy brain that actually propels us forward. And so I'm, you know, for me, mental performance and, and, and mindset, it's really about not just existing, but but thriving and being yeah. my best self. And turning that thermostat up to 90. Yeah. Well, maybe I only get to 80, but shit, I'm going to 90. <laughs> I like to think of it as not feeling normal because there's no such thing as normal as feeling extraordinary for you. All as, yeah. much, as much as you can. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's different for everyone. It is. Because everyone's brain be, is different. And there will be bumps. I mean, that's why I think if I were to if I were to leave people with any kind of real um, takeaway, it's to uh, it, it's to just, you know, put the pocket jury out to pasture. You know, they've had enough. Introduce yourself to your inner champion. He's the only he, he or she or it is the only real source of turning down the volume of your inner critic. You cannot focus on turning down the volume of your inner critic by wishing or focusing your energy on that. You have to turn your, or I had to turn my attention to really my strengths, my purpose, my passion, my progress, and, and really turn up the volume of my inner champion. By turning up the volume on my inner champion, my inner critic automatic, I don't have to, I don't even have to worry about to him, man. He just, he, he just feels, <laughs> he just feels ignored. <laughs> and I think for those that are struggling is if you don't know who your inner champion is, is it's really important that you do get the help to to take the cloak off to unveil and uncover uh, your true inner champion that lies lies within your mind because we all possess one. It, it's exactly just important right. to 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 bring them to the fore. So what would your one piece of advice to be to this show is all about. Uh, brain health as you know and unchaining your pain what would be your one piece of advice to to anybody who is struggling with an addiction uh, what would what would your advice be to them well i always go back to my 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 proven solution which is to ask for help you know there are people in this space in all spaces whether it's mental health whether it's addiction whether it's depression anxiety ask for help and commit yourself to a better life I think that is just so important. And Les Brown says this, isn't he? Ask for help, not because you feel weak. Ask for help so that you may remain strong. How can people find out more about you? Oh, well, thank you. I'm, all, I'm, all, I'm on all platforms. So on Instagram, I'm at Charlie Smith Speaks. Um, I've got a Charlie Smith Facebook page. I have a podcast committed to helping people overcome adversity in their lives called Overcome Out Loud with Charlie Smith. Um, and, you know, we're doing as much as we can in the mental performance and mindset space to really continue to uh, expand the message of healing. 
um, of breaking the stigma associated with substance abuse. Um, so I've got a I've got a, a, a wide uh, path I'm trying to cut, but you know it's all important to me, and it, yeah. and, and it all and it's all connected, huh? I, I just love all of the work that you're doing. You know, it's just amazing how you're helping other people really um, with the struggles that they have with their brain health. And I just really just thank you for for doing that um, from the bottom of my heart because so many people need that well, support that's just difficult to access. So well, thank you. So, thank you. Yeah, Talk thank you. Thank you. And this show is all about brain health, unchaining your pain. You're not stuck with the brain you have. You have the power to make it better by unchaining your pain and unleashing that superpower inside your mind. Thank you, Charlie. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And thank you for going so deep on such a, a personal and difficult topic. I really appreciate your time and, uh, and the insights that you've given us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank Be well, you. everyone. This broadcast is brought to you by Winject Studios. We are an all-in-one educational platform for podcasters that revolutionizes how hosts leverage content to increase engagement with listeners, downloads, and income. We come together to focus on community, collaboration, and collective impact. For more information on how you can interact directly with our hosts, access exclusive live content with offers you can't get anywhere else from our official partners, join our purpose-driven community by visiting www.winject.com. If you're ready to build a career doing what you love, then we're ready to see you there.